Hey, this is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Armed with only food, water, and a crank-powered Victrola, what five records would you want? Go on, chase that girl. Go on, get that money. Go on, break the world. Welcome to your post-Christmas Monday morning hangover people uh also the end of hanukkah um and i hope it was all sababa as they say in israel um today we have steve berlin of los lobos on my high stash los lobos is one of the great american bands of all time and no one can tell me different um i'm excited to share our uh, conversation with you uh steve and i really dug into um, his personal history with the L.A. punk scene and the Blasters and how he sort of, um, in in baseball terms, uh, opted for free agency and famously signed with Los Lobos about 40 years ago. Um, he also threw me a pretty serious curveball during this episode when he told me all five of his albums at once. <laughs> That's on me for not saying... Uh, Give me your first one. So um, as the catcher in this situation, I'll try to throw down the right signs from now on. And also, because a bunch of people asked, I, I've started a Mile High Stash playlist on Spotify. So not only can you listen to Mile High Stash, the podcast on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and, and everywhere else, uh, you can also find the uh, My High Stash playlist on Spotify. And every week I'll add songs from every album my, my guests choose. Um, here's my chat with Steve Berlin of Los Lobos and Los Super 7 and a lot more. Um, but first, some words about Spirit Hound Distillers, one of my favorite spots of any kind in Colorado. Um, up for homemade spirits and, and live music and also just the, the staff there is is wonderful as well. Um, Amanda actually plays on my softball team. Anyway, we'll talk soon. Spirit Hound Distillers has been crafting premium spirits in Lyons, Colorado for a decade and specializes in gin, vodka, rum, and barrel-aged whiskeys made from Colorado ingredients. Did you know that the Whiskey of the Year is made right here in Colorado at Spirit Hound? Yes, Spirit Hound was honored to win the London Spirits Competition as both Whiskey of the Year and Best in Show. Everything Spirit Hound makes is from right here in Colorado. Come visit them for a tour or a night of live music and cocktails or ask for Spirit Hound wherever you shop in Colorado. Hey, man. Hey, Steve, how are you? Good. How you doing? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Fuck yeah. So you're um, in Portland, is that right? Actually, I live in Southwest Washington, so I'm um, 15 miles away from Portland on the other side of uh, Columbia River. Yeah. And how long have you been there? Since uh, 2017. So I, I moved to Portland. I, I've been, I was in Portland in uh, 2005, so I've been in the area for a little while. And how did you choose that? 
Uh, you know, I just, uh, um, you know, it's always been, you know, cool place. Uh, my wife and my family and I were living on an Island off the coast of, uh, Seattle, uh, prior to that. And, um, you know, Island life is great until it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, when it was time for, uh, more of a city vibe, we, you know, we looked around, uh, Seattle was, uh, kind of expensive and, Portland at that time was much cheaper. So we were, we picked Portland. Yeah. So I was hanging out at the Stanley hotel, like three years ago, um, with my buddy, Taylor Scott, uh, uh, the guitar player. Oh yeah. Um, and I had interviewed Louie, you know, for, I, th- I think Westward in Denver. And, um, one of the few acts that I'm starstruck by is Los Lobos. And just the fact that you and Taylor were sitting at a table together in the bar at the Stanley, I was like, Oh my God, you're sitting, you were sitting next to Steve Berlin, you know? And I'm, um, I'm wondering if, if that is normal for you across the country that, you know, you find these kids who are phenoms and then ask them to sit in, or is that rare? Uh, I'd say it's kind of, I mean, it's not like every city has a Taylor Scott. I mean, it's kind of, unusual uh you know we uh i mean if put it this way if there is somebody talented and you know either a friend of a friend or or you know somebody that we know yeah we'll we'll invite them up to play i mean it's not unusual it's uh we we enjoy it yeah um i wanted to ask you about your history with colorado you know like like what are some of your best memories of playing in the rocky mountains Oh man, um, we did one run one summer that was, or summer one winter that was like we didn't come below eighty eight thousand, yeah, eight thousand feet the whole time. So mm-hmm. that one sticks out just because I remember not breathing or sleeping for a week. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it's not exactly friendly for a sax player to be up that high, and, right, and that dry. So it, uh, it was different. Um, you know, we we've had a lot of fun shows. Uh, you know. I remember uh, like sitting in with the leftover salmon at Ophelia's. That was super fun. Uh, I actually did some shows with Taylor, like some little like community, like we played in like, what's that? Silverthorne, I think it's called. Like just some little, you know, like outdoor pavilion with him. That was super fun. I don't know. I, I, uh, you know, I I really enjoyed all my time in Colorado. I made a bunch of records there. I've got a lot of good friends there. It's it's always been uh, kind of a special place. For me yeah. anyway you know the, what four salmon records and a um string cheese record and sheesh who else i mean there's plenty of them. um michelle sarah um you know just much lots and lots of them. so the um you know the premise of of my show is is that i've been doing um, articles for many years doing interviews for newspapers and it's it, it's fun to kind of show people the um you know the more lengthy um experience you know the personality of the of the people i I talk to rather than just some quotes in an article that i write and the fun part is having the theme you know be um, these five albums and so you you've spent a lot of time in colorado so just imagine that you're stuck in in a cabin in the winter and uh you know to make it even more entertaining there are 
there are zombies outside and you don't know whether your family and, and friends are, you know, I, I hate to say it, but eaten. And <laughs> so it, it's, it's kind of a twist on the desert Island scenario because uh, it's yeah. not, it's not so pleasant. And so we kind of interrupt our, our life of <laughs> Steve Berlin interview to ask you what your five albums would be. Um, well, you know, it's funny. I, I guess I did. I didn't get the the zombie. I thought that was humorous. I didn't really get the uh, <laughs> actual subtext of, of of a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, happening. Um, and I will say that you know, it's like it's you know, literally impossible for me to you know, five albums is like you know, I I don't know. It's a challenge. But uh, so my five today, like this, would change like in forty five minutes if you ask me again. But right. Like, 45 minutes that I spent doing it to this. Um, uh, Charles Mingus said, uh, Black Satan, the Center and Lady. It's always one special record for me. Oh, sweet. Uh, Miles Bitches Brew. Uh, the band, second, the band, the band, the second one. Uh, Little Feet, Dixie Chicken. And uh, Caetano Veloso, a record called uh, Livro from, it's about 15 or 20 years old now. Can you tell me about that one? Because that's that's the only one I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, he's a he's a really interesting guy. He's a, he's sort of like the Dylan of of Brazilian music, more or less. Mm -hmm. He's been through you know changed his his stripes a zillion times. Uh, actually got arrested and went to jail for a time when the the government didn't want to hear what he had to say. And uh, this record is uh, is one that's like. Um, it's very uh it's orchestral but like with a lot of like brazilian um themes and and um percussion and uh it's just exquisite it's just you know like i've turned people onto it just you know it, you don't really understand a single word he's saying and he still makes you cry your eyes out it's uh, it's just special in a lot of a lot of different ways you know he's got a kind of slightly dylan-esque voice you know he's not a great singer i mean i think he's an amazing singer but it's not you know it's a it's a voice uh you know he's he's not that uh, you know he's not Pavarotti or anything like that it's it's a you know it's a kind of a unique instrument yeah. and i was lucky enough to work with him i mean i i was you know like it, it was an extreme it was an amazing experience to just kind of hang around with him and he recorded a song on uh on one of the super seven records so i got to oh, like wow go to his place and hang out with them and talk about music. And it was unbelievable. I'm hoping that, that anybody uh, who listens to this um, and hasn't heard most super seven, you know, checks it out because uh, Latin playboys is, is worth listening to. And Los super seven, that song, Teresa is one that, it actually reminds me of Thelonious Monk a little bit, the piano part in that, you know, it's <laughs> just, that's high praise. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Super 7 records are just, they're just a ball. You know, we, they're, they, both of them have been incredibly fun to make. And um, I think we're going to do another one. We're, we're, we're seriously talking about it. I had, had a couple of meetings already. So nice. I think there might be yet one more. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go all the way back. You know, I I wanted I wanted to know whether you spent all of your childhood in Philadelphia. I spent all of my childhood in Philadelphia. Um, 
I left when I was uh, 19, 18, yeah. and uh, moved to L.A. But yeah, my entire childhood was spent there. And was moving was to it? L.A. The, the best choice you ever made? Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, I mean, I probably wouldn't be talking to you had I chose yeah. somebody, you know, it kind of changed everything for me. You know, that's, um, you know, it's where I met all the people I've played with and allowed me to you know, kind of fulfill my, my dreams. So yeah, it's definitely, definitely a good move. Uh, and did you get, you know, involved with, um, you know, the music scene, the blasters and then Los Lobos, you know, did all of that happen for you fairly quickly when you moved there? Um, yeah, I, well, I mean, it, I, I moved there. I, I arrived like Christmas 74. So I was there from 75 on um and those first couple years i i came basically to to play with a band um of guys from philly that had moved out and who were basically like a rhythm section and uh they got hired by both billy preston and greg allman like not long after arriving but not long after my arrival they lost both gigs not i had nothing to do with it mm. <laughs> i had nothing to do with it just uh, Billy had to leave town because of he was about to be arrested for something. And Greg, that was like the era when Greg was with uh, Cher, right? And his life was a you know like a circus, and so he you know he basically had to check out of his life for a while too. But um, so I you know I we decided the, the guys from Philly and myself just to put a band together, and so we did, and um, we uh, we got signed to Casablanca Records and. So this would be 77. So I kind of got to see firsthand, like a little small taste of what the music business was like, you know, uh, at that era anyway, like mm -hmm. it was certainly not the sixties and, you know, not, not, you know, the late seventies was basically just, it's kind of a, it, it was the moment before everything changed more or less. So it was kind of silly. Um, I mean, the, the band was, we were good. I mean, we were actually really good, but it was, uh, you know, it was just a funny era. The the label was basically just a front for uh, cocaine ship oh, shipping around the world. So, what was the uh, name of that band, Steve? It was called the Beckmeyer Brothers Band. Okay. So these two brothers from they were from New York who had moved to Philly, and uh, were playing with um, a band called the Soul Survivors, who had had hits in the '60s. Um, Expressway to Your Heart was the, their big hit, but they were sort of like a white soul band, uh, more or less, and that was sort of what we did when we came to LA. Like it was sort of the same, I guess the paradigm would be roughly like the, the boss gags records of that era. We had a couple singers there were three guys that could sing in the band. One of them was, was um, a guy who went on to sing and play with uh, Frank Zappa, a guy named R.A. Martin, who was really great, you know, good looking, great singer, great voice. So it was kind of a, it was a fun, you know, uh, it was, it was, fun i mean we got to i got to make a record in a studio with a big time producer even though he was an idiot <laughs> so mm -hmm. i got to see the whole the whole rigmarole and um so i was sort of like you know i, I learned some things learned what to do what not to do more yeah probably more what not to do than what to do but uh the whole experience was was cool i mean it was it, you know i was very young i was not even 20 when all this was going down so it was it was kind of you know an interesting way to more or less grow up yeah and how did you end up in the blasters? 
Um, well, I was playing, so this would be, so that band kind of blew up. I mean, it just kind of fell apart really. Um, and your record didn't do anything The the, the, I was sort of like pretty much, I was, you know, the youngest by, you know, seven or eight years. So I, I was sort of like, you know, I had different, I, I wasn't like that basically. Like they had different, a different agenda and I kind of wanted to explore what the scene that was sort of developing all around LA and these guys couldn't care less about it. Mm -hmm. So um, I started playing with this guy named Fast Freddy who had a band called The Precisions. And Freddy was, um, he was a writer. Um, he had like a, you know, he, he wrote for a couple of local paper, like the local scenes, uh, the music papers, but he was like, he was beloved by everybody. Like he knew everybody He was, he couldn't really sing per se, but you know, he was kind of, you know, he, that didn't stop him. That didn't stop anybody really. I mean, like not being able to sing or play was no impediment to starting a band in that era. Right. So, but it was, it was a fun band. Like we would do that kind of fun stuff. And uh, he was beloved by a lot of people, including the blasters. So it wasn't unusual for Freddie to open a show for the blasters. And so I became friends with the Alvin brothers and we would have like these like all night, you know, beer record parties at the Alvin's house where, you know, just like try to out obscure each other with mm. bizarre R and B records. <laughs> And I, you know, that was kind of like my education. I was not, that was not the, 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 you know, I didn't really know that much about like, you know, forties and fifties R&B until I started hanging out and playing with Freddie and hanging, certainly hanging out with the, the Alvin brothers, but I was not really in the blasters. I was just friends with them. And then one day I was working at a music store and Dave called the music stores before cell phones. And so he tried to find me and he, and he asked if I had a baritone sax. I did not, but I said that I did. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, come to the studio. We're cutting this song. I'm shaking. Uh, so that was uh, that was like the phone call that changed my life, basically. So I went down and I, I borrowed a, uh, took a horn off the off the rack at the music store and went down to the studio and it went well. And then uh, they said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, you tell me. And I they said, come back. We'll do some more stuff. So that's kind of where where it all started, really. And um I was asked to join the, I mean, it was never really asked to join. I just assumed that I would join the band. So I did. And then, you know, we hit the road. And so I was in the blasters for the next, uh, what, two years, I guess, two or three years. Something like when that. did you start playing sax? Um, I started, uh, let's see, I, I started, I was playing harmonica when I was in, in high school. And then uh, actually before high school. And then I, I, you know, it, I loved playing harmonica, but it wasn't, you know, I really wasn't, there's not a whole lot of ways to express yourself if you're not a great player. So I, I started playing soprano sax, but I would, uh, I'd run it through a bunch of like an amp and a, and pedals and stuff like that. I kind of wanted to get like the sound of an amplified harmonica, but with more, more note choices. And that was my main axe for, you know, for the whole, what, you know, when I was in Philly and then when I left Philly for LA, but this, the Beckmeyer brothers at one point said, you know, if, if you don't show up with another horn tomorrow, you're fired. <laughs> so I had to, I had to expand my, my palate a little bit. Uh, so I started playing tenor. I, I got a tenor and started playing tenor. And then literally that phone call from Dave Alvin was when I started playing baritone. So, and that's kind of been my main axe ever since baritone. 
Did you have a point where you maybe realized that like a baseball player who can play, who's a utility player that you would always have a job if you could, you could play numerous instruments? You know, I never really took, I never had to plan like that. I've, I've always managed to like somehow another luck into situations where I don't really have to ask myself those questions. I mean, mm -hmm. from, you know, from Freddie to the blasters to Lobos, I mean, it's always sort of been, uh, you know, I just sort of was in the right place at the right time with the right people. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's legendary, uh, you know, Los Lobos hiring you. And I don't know the whole story, but I can uh, theorize that it's kind of like how the Dodgers kind of get any player they want. And <laughs> so the Lobos are kind of like another L.A. team that just says, hey, we want that guy. No, it wasn't like that at all. To be honest <laughs> with you. Um, no, it was, uh, I mean, uh, I, you know, I was in the Blasters. I, I, they were actually paying me a, a weekly salary, which mm -hmm. was, you know, really amazing and my life was very simple i had a really cheap apartment uh in venice um so i you know it was it was life was was pretty cool it was you know not it was no challenge to to make the rent with what i was getting paid from those guys and but um you know they were it was a weird situation in that they they were fighting literally all the time about anything and everything um mm. they were known i mean any brother band almost all of them there's always like a built-in sort of sense of contentiousness and they were no strangers to it look at the kinks and, yeah like the kinks or you know like you name it like the, the oasis i mean there's just mm -hmm. there's like just brothers are really hard to, to to share uh musical endeavors with i guess i don't know it's hard for yeah. me to understand but you know they would they were always squabbling about stuff and the other guys in the band were also kind of all squabbling about stuff and I was the youngest and the newest, so you know nobody really wanted to hear anything I had to say. But you know, I was the only one of the band that had ever like, you know, actually, you know, I, well, actually, they had made a record by the time I showed up. But I was like, you know, I I wasn't completely, you know, new. I, I had actually had a little bit of experience, even though I was, you know, well younger than than them. Uh, and I could, you know, it, it seemed like they were doing dumb stuff, which they were. I mean, mm. <laughs> they were making, you know, like, uh, not. I don't know. I mean, not, I wouldn't say dumb stuff, but it was just uh, like, they didn't want to hear anything I had to say. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, just being in that situation, even though I love them and I love playing with them. And certainly I love um, Lee Allen was my, my hero. You know, the, the, the sax player in, in the blasters, the other sax player was, you know, somebody I, I literally worshiped and still, still, you know, think of like a, you know, he's the most important person in my life. It was, it was still kind of a tough situation in that, like, you know, it just wasn't, how should I say this? I mean, it was, it was a great thing. Like I was playing in a band and traveling all over the world really. But at the same time, I, I was sort of like, I had other things in mind. Like I wanted to produce records and I wanted to, you know, I, I certainly didn't want to imagine that my future would be one where I wouldn't be able to have an opinion about stuff mm -hmm. but that, you know, in the blasters, that was more or less guaranteed that, and nobody wanted to hear a single thing I had to say about mm. anything. So, uh, so one weekend the 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 blasters are op were playing at the whiskey and the span Los Lobos opens up and they're you know they're unbelievably great and no one had ever seen anything like them. You know, there was just this amazing. It was like uh, I don't know. It was like a just overnight success, literally. Like the next day that literally anybody and everybody in LA and it was a small scene. That's all we wanted. So all anybody was talking about was 
Did you see this band Los Lobos? So th they said, you know, we, we sort of just started talking and they said, you know, we have some songs that have sax parts. If you want to, you know, hang out with us and learn them. And, and I said, yeah, by all means, I'd love to. So, you know, it just sort of started there. And, you know, I went to their rehearsal place in East LA and yeah. hung out with them and learned a bunch of songs. I mean, I didn't start, you know, hustling a producer gig out of it, but I was, you know, I just sort of wanted to see what that was about. And, you know, it's just sort of nice being treated with respect, basically. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a big part of it for me. I mean, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really thinking in terms of big, you know, 40, 50 year career moves. I just kind of, mm -hmm. I just wanted to be around people that, that, you know, would at least listen to what I had to say, if not necessarily, you know, agree with me. Yeah. Um. So um, we just sort of, I, I mean, I just sort of started doing more and more shows. I mean, well, you know, a show for them would be like playing at a quinceañera or a, you know, a political event or something, you know, like, yes, yeah. you know, the blasters were playing for, you know, a thousand, two thousand people like all over the world. And the levels were playing for like a bunch of people in the backyard, but it was still really fulfilling and, and great to hang out with them. And we just had a ball just being around each other. It was just fun. So this continued for a while. And I was like trying to play as much as I could with the Lobos. And, you know, I, I could sort of see their, somewhat see the writing on the wall with the blasters that like they were starting to involve the horns less and less. And Dave was sort of, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it was pretty obvious to me that he was pulling away from, from his brother and from all the, the fighting that was going on. Yeah. So, you know, one day the, the Lobos were going someplace and the blasters were going somewhere else. And I just said, you know, I'm going to go with these guys. And it wasn't, you know, it didn't seem to bother anybody. Like they were like, Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, well, right. something like, Nobody tried to talk me out of it. Nobody said, you know, that's a bad idea. I mean, I had friends that said it was a really bad idea because, you know, I was giving up, you know, relatively marginal success for something that was highly, you know, volatile. But uh, like I said, like, it wasn't like I was thinking that this was going to be a career defining choice. It was just sort of like, it made sense to me on the emotional level and on the, you know, just by being around people that I could hang out with and talk to and exchange ideas instead of being yelled at or yelling right. around, you know, it wasn't, they weren't yelling at me, but, you know, yelling at each other all the time. So I don't know, it was just sort of, uh, it, it didn't seem like it was that momentous of a move, but obviously it changed everything for me. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I wonder what it's like to join a band of, of guys who met in high school and they'd already, they formed in 1974 you know, but as you were alluding to, it was mostly weddings and parties and things like that. And then um, I, I talked to Louis, I've interviewed Louis a couple of times and he talks about how um, they made a, a conscious choice to start playing shows in the punk scene and maybe not make any money, but making connections and relationships yeah. and things like that. And yeah, I was around for most of that. Uh, yeah, it was, it was true. I mean, they, they actually had a pretty solid living, you know, in East LA, you know, and around East LA, just sort of doing these parties and stuff like that. But they were willing to uh, experiment and, you know, I mean, not necessarily lose money, but they, they were, you know, they, they, they really did, you know, took a bold chance by, you know, saying, you know, that they're, they're going to just stick it out and see what happens and playing yeah. it in the scene. And they were, you know, they were beloved though. I mean, everybody, everybody loved Los Lobos. I mean, it was just, 
before I joined the band, I was, you know, playing with all these other bands and just like, you know, whenever, like they were just like, nobody didn't love hanging out with them, playing with them. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of like, because it was just such an improbable story. Like everybody else was sort of like, you know, I, I, I tell this, you know, the, the, this, you know, like you think about it, like the the band, like the oldest band on the scene at that moment, like let, let's say the band that had been around the longest might have been, you know, let's say the the plugs was a band that I actually had played in for a while or the weirdos. And they, you know, like their, their whole, you know, life, their, the extent their, their band had existed for three years, maybe right. not even two years. And there was X too. And, then, right? and X, but you know, X was the same mm-hmm. thing. It was like, you know, they've been together for two years, maybe when the scene kind of blew up and, mm-hmm. and, you know, here these guys have played together for seven or eight years at that point. And it was just sort of like this, this sort of like, this sort of, I don't know, um, this sort of uh, strength that comes from from doing that that nobody else had. Not that the other bands weren't strong or connected or or mm-hmm. great. I mean, certainly, you know, X Blasters were all great. It was just sort of like the Lobos had this different um, sort of substructure of of solidity and brotherhood that nobody else could have because they hadn't put the time in. They hadn't struggled the mm-hmm. way. You know, they hadn't done the stuff that Lobos did to get to that point. Right. It's just sort of like uh, it was just different. It was just like a very different vibe than anybody else. Certainly anybody else on the scene, you know, just they they just had like a different thing going on. It was and plus, you know, being multicultural and singing in Spanish. I mean, there's like a million reasons why yeah. they were unique and and beloved and, you know, like just special in and among the the, the crowd, you know. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but. I've always had this analogy in my head between the Pogues and Los Lobos. These bands that came around at a time when, you know, punk was originally about freedom. It was an idea. You were doing something that was an alternative to the mainstream. And by the time that we're talking about where Los Lobos is playing in the same scene as Black Flag and X and the Germs and and these bands, uh, uh, punk was a sound. And so uh, sort of like the Pogues, what's more punk than saying we're going to play traditional music and we're going to, and we're going to do it. Do it our way. yeah, Our way. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, well, for one thing, you know, we, we had a, we formed a very, very tight bond with the Pogues. I mean, we, the first, the most, like we, we were brothers from another mother, as they say, like we, the first time we met, we were just like, Oh yeah, we 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 recognize, you know, game recognize game. You know, it's like we we recognize these guys as our, you know, literally like the exact same idea from a different country. That's great to hear. Um, yeah, that was it was always a crazy when we would get together with them. But you know, I don't know if it was any more or less punk than any what other people were doing. It's just sort of like a different, you know, like that's just the sort of experimentation that was happening in that era. You know, like everybody was sort of trying to figure out, you know trying to recontextualize their lives and their music and and trying to come up with something that was fun and and repeatable and and you know growable i guess and um you know certainly for lobos it was uh you know this this cultural that you know they really put the time in to learn the music and the instruments and learn the stories and learn the songs so you know it was kind of a like hey look what we found kind of yeah. thing and we were able to sort of create this uh you know an identity out of it uh, as we you know once we at one point there was like 
you know, it's sort of like a separate thing, like the folkloric stuff and the rock and roll were like two separate baskets. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, slowly over time, we figured out that, you know, we could actually do both and create something kind of brand new out of, out of putting it all together. And I'd, I'd say, you know, the Pogues, you know, certainly the, the people like the Pogues, Richard Thompson, you know, the, the guys were huge fans of that, of those, of the, of that music. So they, they kind of like, they, we took a lot of, uh, we learned a lot from watching them do that and, you know, stole a lot of ideas from them in terms of like how to incorporate traditional song forms yeah. and instruments and everything else, try and make it happen. Well, thankfully you didn't drink like them, you know, so that, that's, we would, uh, I don't know. I mean, we, you know, we'd go toe for toe as yeah. long as we could. I mean, it, it, I, I don't, I, I don't think that's one of the things that we, we got along quite well with that we could hang with them. Uh, yeah. and I don't know if anybody could really drink with, with, uh, Shane, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, we we certainly were were no uh, you know no slouches in that department. Yeah, what was your history with Latin music before Los Lobos? Because a, a lot of people maybe think, well, Los Lobos grew up doing Mexican traditional music, Latin music, and then became rock. But actually, what happened was that a lot of those guys wanted to do rock. Yeah, it was both. I mean, they you know we all kind of grew up you know children of the of 60s radio like you know we're i was doing it in la and they were or in philly and they were doing it in la and so you know we, we all we had a lot of the same touchstones as far as that that's concerned they just chose at a certain point to like go and study this this mm -hmm. the music of their culture and and it was more or less it started as just kind of a an experiment like somebody asked them to do it i think for a party and um they kind of got into it and then they they really got into it as they they went deeper, but you know they yeah. were it wasn't like they were, you know, like classical people trying to play jazz or or you know what I mean yeah. like it was always just the 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 notion of of the music was something fun to do, but they would you know the, when they would go home they'd listen to Cream and Stones and the Beatles and everything like the same stuff that effectively I was listening to in Philly. I just didn't have the cultural, you know, the, the cultural component myself. But I had right. I had literally zero. I mean, I had, I knew nothing about Latin music whatsoever when I grew up in Philly. Nothing. There was no. Yeah. I knew a lot about soul music. And I knew a lot about um, jazz. I mean, I was sort of a jazz snob for a while, and certainly I knew a bit about rock. But I, you know, I I learned everything I learned about Latin music came once I joined Lobos and hung out and you know got to experience it with them. And then and I were you keep on it myself. Were you on that that first EP in a time to dance? Yes, I, I started. You know, when when the record when we finally got signed to Slash, um, I was still in the Blaster, so I started the record as producer. And then by the time the record was done, I was in the band. So I'm not on the. You know, the, the, it's just the four guys on the album cover. Yeah, and I'm just credited for playing on a couple songs. Uh, but you know, when it started, I was you know that was sort of like the moment when I was transitioning from one band to the other. Yeah. Did you have any idea that joining that band would mean, you know, within, uh, I don't know, five years, you, you would find such mainstream success? You'd be on the Grammys and... Uh, no, certainly, like, you know, no, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. None of us. I mean, you know, every single thing that happened was surprising and, and, and wonderful and unexpected. No, we certainly, you know we had no designs on pop stardom. We were just happy to be 
making a living playing music. Um, it's you know basically that, that's still the way we think about it. I mean, it's still yeah. just very grateful to to have a job doing this stuff. But no, we you know I certainly it was not like you know I'm, I'm going to join this band and you know go top of the pops. I mean, right. And Labamba was you know when we started it. I mean, even when we finished it, it was it wasn't like we thought this was going to be some giant hit um, thing. It was you know a small movie with a first time director and a cast of people in the movie that no one had ever heard of or seen before. Yeah. It wasn't like, it certainly was not a situation where like, Oh, this is going to be, you know, top of the pops. I mean, it was anything, but really. Yeah. But it happened. I mean, it was kind of a magical experience, but you know, certainly going into it, it was, we were just doing it because the family asked us to, and they were, they were, his, you know, Richie's family was friends of ours. They, they had taken care of us. Mm. long before there was any you know like when we were touring around central california they they would like feed us and house us and kind of like be our our family away from home when we were in their area Located in Heavenly Gold Hill, Colorado, the Gold Hill Inn was built in 1924 and has been owned and operated by the Finn family for the last 60 years. The inn is known for its fabulous three- or six-course meals and unforgettable concerts by local artists, from gasoline lollipops to Gregory Allen Isakoff. To get up to where time stands still, take Sunshine Canyon or Four Mile Canyon from Boulder and experience the Gold Hill Inn's wonderful food and music with all the fixings. And when did you decide to become a producer and 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 branch out from being a sideman? Well, you know, I'd always, even like back in Philly, I was always sort of fascinated by the idea of how the records got made. So, mm -hmm. um, it was, uh, I mean, I, it was always sort of like it was the back of my mind aspiration when I was in Philly. But I would, you know, like even then, like I had a band before the band. That I went to LA with that I had produced, I guess. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know it was producing, but I mm. kind of made a, a little EP of, of, of that band. Um, you know, I just sort of like, it was always a thing that I was fascinated by. And then, um, you know, when I got to LA and um, certainly like the, you know, like watching the, the band that got signed, you know, screw up every <laughs> watching yeah. them make mistake after mistake uh i kind of learned a lot and then this you know this sort of punk rock thing was happening in la and it was like all of a sudden i was able to manifest it so um i had produced a couple things before lobos and i mean certainly lobos was the highest profile thing that i'd done but i was always there like i always wanted to 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 figure, learn how to do it like how do you actually make how do you actually get something made yeah and uh you know, slowly, you know, like trial by lots of error and screw up after screw up and bad record after bad record. I kind of figured mm -hmm. out how to do it the way I think it's supposed to be done. I think anybody who grew up in the 80s just really remembers that moment when La Bamba came out and all of a sudden you were household names. 
it was uh it was unique <laughs> yeah that, that that was true like you know it went from what do you do i play in a band what band los lobos never heard of you so mm -hmm. what do you do I play in a band los lobos i never heard of you well you heard the movie la bamba like yeah that was us oh shit so <laughs> yeah it, it uh it was interesting still you know to this day i mean it's still you know everybody everybody knows the movie everybody you know it's it's it 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 seems to have uh, affected a lot of people so yeah it was a it was a blessing obviously but you know we had again like i like no clue that it was going to be anything i mean at no time in the making of the of any part of it did it seem like it was going to be successful on any level it was just a, it was a kind of a giant mess for about 90 percent of it and then like right at the end they kind of pulled it all together and um i had you know i was the one that was doing most of the, the actual work on the movie the guys were making uh, by the light of the moon while i was doing you know like kind of like coordinating mm -hmm. our bits and the other parts of the movie and you know like so i was watching it more or less every day for six months probably wow. um and it wasn't like it wasn't a bad like i can't say it was a you know it wasn't a bad movie but it was uh it was you know kind of a mess they didn't really the, the script went a couple different directions before they sort of solidified it. Um, mm -hmm. There was a long, long, boring, like 20 minute, like peyote dream sequence at one point that was really right. Yeah. It's just, like the doors almost. Yeah. So that was, that, they cut that, that made a big, you know, that was the part, you know, once that was sort of chopped out, then the movie made a lot more sense, mm -hmm. but you know, they didn't like, they didn't have uh they didn't cast the Lou Diamond Phillips was not, they didn't find him until, well after the movie had begun so they had basically shot every scene that he wasn't in before he showed up and i just remembered luis the director saying don't you know any chicanos who could sing don't you know any good looking young chicanos like mm -hmm. he was trying like he it had to be someone who had you know chicano or latin ancestry yeah at least so it was uh you know it was it was interesting like it, it again like it 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 just seemed like it was a, a big giant mess until suddenly it all kind of lined up. And I was like, Oh, this is, it's a really good movie. And I just remember like walking out of the editing room, the last, like my last day working on it. Uh, we were getting ready to go to Europe. And I just remember, like, I saw the final cut with the final, like everything, like more or less the movie that came out. And I just remember thinking, wow, it's, they really pulled it together. It's a pretty good movie. It's a shame. No one's going to see it. <laughs> so how wrong can you be yeah well you know that's not the first time i've been 100 percent wrong it's yeah i got used to it uh, can you talk a little about whether there was you know after after the success of la bamba whether there was some disconnect between you guys and and the record label maybe about wanting to, to cash in on that and have you know no most of his big hit record Certainly no one, no one who we listened to at the label would ever right. say that, what, you know, like there were people who might've thought that, but yeah. you know, like we didn't really care about, you know, we really only talked to a couple of people at the label, mm -hmm. um, you know, Lenny Walker and Mo Austin and uh, you know, like a very, very, very small, like Tom Wally when he was there, like there wasn't a lot of people who we really liked or trusted. I mean, there was a, you know, when we started, it was like a big family, but it, like, even as that was happening, it was sort of like the company was growing and there was often like the, you know, you'd walk in, like you go into somebody's, you know, you go to see, stop in someone's office and like, Hey, where'd he go? I was like, Oh, he was fired. I'm the new guy. Like, wow. 
really? Yeah. Um, or he not fired, but he, you know, he, he got headhunted elsewhere. So mm-hmm. we didn't really care or listen to very many people at the label and no one that we cared about would have ever said, you know, what about La Bamba too? Cause number mm-hmm. one, we did almost all of the songs that he wrote were done in the movie. Um, and you know, what would that be? Like it was, you know, there was, we, you know, we, the, the songs that weren't in the movie were not very good songs to be perfectly honest. So it wasn't like there was a, a thing there, there was no way to do it. And, you know, we really, we knew we, we were well aware that it was sort of, um, it was a, a dream. Like it wasn't, this was not a ringing endorsement of Los Lobos, the band. It was, it was all about the movie and how the movie affected mm-hmm. people. And, you know, how, you know, like this sort of like this surprising story of a movie, you know, kind of coming out of nowhere and affecting all these people. But we, we, we were well, well aware that it was not like, it wasn't like somebody like discovering like REM or, mm-hmm. you know, you name it like Coldplay or something like that like oh this i heard this great band and then you know you go deep in the catalog and you want to know what you know like the way bands get discovered this was like it really didn't like the the numbers like it wasn't like all of a sudden like the records prior were selling crazy like the by the light of the moon did you know almost nothing because everybody was you know all they, they cared about was la bamba so yeah uh it was a different sort of success and when it was done it was done. Like we, it was like being on a rocket ship. It, it went up to, you know, to outer space. But then when it came down, it came down more or less right where we started. And we were you know, within a couple of years, three, four years, maybe we were playing the exact same places we were playing yeah. before. I mean, mind you, there were more people there. Uh, and, you know, people knew the more people knew who we were. It wasn't like it was, it was for nothing, but it, it didn't, it didn't really materially affect as much as you might have thought from the success of La Bamba and the movie and everything else. Yeah. I've heard Louis say that maybe there was some uh, incredulousness from the label when you said you wanted to do La Pistola y El Corazón. Yeah, Yeah, that was, yeah, they were, yeah. Yeah, we're going to follow up a multi-million selling record with a bunch of, with a bunch of uh, folkloric, Mexican folkloric music. Yeah, that that wasn't like it wasn't uh they, they weren't giving us a standing ovation for that call. Yeah. But to their great credit, and I will sp- you know, very specifically cite, you know, Lenny Walker, who was the one who we were kind of pitching that to. He was he was always on our side. He was always for the art and not for the money. Like he did yeah. not like he he knew that we were building something much bigger than La Bamba and mm-hmm. and you know, we we had we wanted to have a career. So he, you know, I don't think it was like, you know, they saw money going out the window. I mean, they just, they just respected the fact that we, we had an idea and we, you know, we felt like somehow, some way we wanted to take the attention that we had earned from La Bamba and put on something that was both close to our heart and gave us an opportunity to effectively uh, clear the decks for whatever was going to happen next. Yeah. So, it was very artistically important to us that we kind of correct the record. Uh, not that, we, you know, we, I mean, I don't know if it was that um, like we, we had to do it to sort of set the record straight. It was just a, a way of us saying to the world, well, you know, you think we're this, we're actually this. So, you know, deal with it. <laughs> yeah. So how do you, um, you know, fast forward 
from that moment to Kiko, you know, and then figuring out who uh, Steve Berlin is and, and and what it is you do. If somebody says to you, what do you do? What What's, what's your answer? And how did you come to that? Well, I'm a musician first, I think, you know, first and foremost, and then producer. Uh, so, you know, that's how I'd answer the question. Then how, like where Kiko came from, I think I could tell you was, so we did, all right, so La Bamba happened, and then we did Pistola. Mm -hmm. And then we, time for another, uh, and then we had done By Light of the Moon, but that was sort of like, By Light of the Moon was, was not a, it was kind of tough. Like we, uh, you know, we, it, it wasn't, uh, it took a really long time. We spent a lot of money. It wasn't artistically satisfying. Um, and then we had La Bamba, which was its own thing. And then uh, Pistola, which was very artistically satisfying. And then it came time to make another record. Um, and, you know, I wasn't producing it. You know, we sort of like worked our way through the T-Bone experience. So we, he wasn't going to be involved. Um, so we gave that title to Larry Hirsch, who had engineered um, uh, Will the Wolf Survive and By the Light of the Moon um, and had kind of earned his stripes more or less, but had never produced anything. And um, that turned out to be a bad idea. Like he didn't really like he, you know, he was really, really, really like he felt like any anything he did or, you know, any movie tried was like going to be the end the end of his career if it didn't work so i don't know he's just, he was kind of a high strength i mean he's a very talented engineer brilliant engineer but was not a producer like he really didn't understand like what the job was um and how to do it so we ended up like redoing all of the songs on that record like over and over and over and over mm -hmm. and over like a million times it's just just stupid like ringing the life like we we rehearsed them and then we toured them and then we recorded them and then we recorded them again and recorded them again really because larry was was not uh you know he, he just wasn't you know he, he nothing was ever good enough like he, he didn't think anything was going to be good enough um quality wise for for him so we really kind of killed ourselves trying to get the record made and then we you know we were already sick of the songs by the time we was done and then we had to go tour it for a year and a half so sort of a weird situation. Then, you know, we, we were touring sort of like thinking that we had earned this, you know, this thing from the La Bamba experience, but it turns out we had sort of overestimated our, our popularity. So we were out, you know, touring with a lighting crew and two buses and spending a lot of money and, and, and losing a lot of money. So we came back from that whole thing, like kind of tired and, pissed off and effectively broke we had you know for the first time literally in the history of the band we'd lost money on a tour like we never even from the early early days we always managed to come home with something mm -hmm. and because we had sort of bought this this idea that we were you know rock stars now we we ended up you know taking it in the shorts <clears throat> so it's time to make another record um we're pissed off at the world <laughs> pissed off at ourselves for, for being stupid and and not, you know, trusting ourselves and listening to, you know, getting bad advice all the way around. And uh, so we started making this record at, um, so I had produced a couple of records with this guy, Paul DuGray, and he had a studio in downtown LA. This is before downtown LA was like the hip place to be. This was when, when it was really kind of a shithole and it was um, kind of scary and um, like it was, 
most people would you know avoid it if they could but uh this guy paul had a pretty cool studio and he was a really really good engineer and uh, it was really cheap so um i suggested that we we do some you know we basically cut some demos um for the next record there uh because uh, i think lenny wanted to hear what we were going to do next and we were also like adamant about producing ourselves not me but like like we had basically gone through you know larry didn't work you know we're done with t-bone we're we're kind of like again like at this point we were anybody who had advised us and told us to do stuff it felt like all that advice had been 100 percent wrong like nothing anybody had told us was was useful for who we were and what we wanted to do so we started doing these songs and and we were really happy with them like it was we we thought it was pretty great and we realized it didn't sound like anything we had ever done but you know we were gonna like we we're we we're like really adamant that this is the sound that we wanted to make like we we're this was where we wanted to go and if the label didn't like it then fuck them and if the world didn't like it fuck them we were just gonna do it um and again you know we took it to lenny and to his enormous credit we, like he kind of got it he was like yeah this is great uh you know but i think you guys i think you guys should talk to mitchell Froome about you know maybe working with him and i would say if like of any like the, had he said any other name we would have said fuck no but we had done a little stuff with mitchell he had obviously he did um the la bamba single like i didn't do the single he did the single and he had done one song on the neighborhood the one song that actually was not um you know we didn't beat to death it was song called be still mm. and it was sort of if i you know to me like be still was the first song of of kiko it's it's on right. a different record but it's yeah. that's the first time we, that we really kind of figured out how to utilize the the sounds and rhythms like how to use the the cultural the the stuff we had learned the the you know like taking a mexican rhythm you know 200 year old mexican rhythm and turning it into a pop song and that's kind of what kiko was about like using like taking the the colors and tools and the, the the sounds that we'd sort of discovered and sort of kept in separate baskets. Now we were, we were all about like mixing them up and, and, you know, trying to turn it into something else. So, you know, that, that was Mitchell and Chad Blake, who was very, very significant in all this stuff, the engineer. And we were like, yeah, that's, let's, let's, let's talk to him. And so we had a, you know, like a brief conversation with him uh, and, they were sort of like you know like i mean we were in this really angry place like we felt like we had been effectively lied to by the music industry like mm -hmm. all this all this advice we had taken and basically you know made us broken unhappy and 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 angry and they were sort of in the same place so we were we started you know that collaboration with them on kiko coming from a place of like fuck the music business fuck mm -hmm. everyone we're just going to do what the fuck we want to do and they, you know and we're not listening to anybody tell us anything and they were like, fuck yeah, we're we're right there with you. So, you know, I mean it's a beautiful record. I'm very proud of it, but it really came from a place of of deep anger and and like we were just mm -hmm. like like done with a lot of the shit that we were getting told. Um, but it was like it was the perfect combination. I mean, they were like Chad was really, really, you know, just so gifted and like, you know, he he could make everything sound amazing and beautiful. Yeah. Um and we just did it, it was like the perfect marriage of 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 people like everybody i just the whole thing was just a dream like i don't remember you know like just every day was just this very like you know you you never knew what the hell was going to happen and the songs came together in really in beautiful amazing inspiring ways and um it was just a 
amazing thing to be part of. And again, yeah, like so we had no idea, like we didn't think, you know, well, you know, we didn't, we hadn't, we weren't, we love what we were doing, but we didn't think the label was going to, you know, that, that we didn't think it was commercial. It certainly didn't sound like La Bamba and it certainly didn't sound like anything else we'd ever done, but we loved it. And again, to their great credit, Lenny was like, yeah, this is amazing. This is great. I'm yeah. just keep going. I mean, at one point we had to sort of like get a, like a temperature check from him. And he was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I hoped you guys would be doing. So, you know, carry on. Mm. It was pretty great. It was great to hear um, how you described Be Still and and it being, you know, you're discovering this melting pot. And do you feel like once you had that uh, formula, the rest of your career, it, I mean, it wasn't like you even had a Los Lobos sound, you know, but you maybe discovered um, anything was possible. Yeah. I mean, that was the first time we'd ever, like, we really kind of realized, you know, we had all the stuff that we had collected, all these sounds and rhythms, like all this stuff that we had, um, we could really create something unique out of. We, you know, it was, we didn't have to keep them separate. We, you know, it was kind of dumb to keep them separate yeah. in the first place, but we didn't really trust or, you know, we didn't think, you know, for, for somehow, some way we needed to get to a place where um, the idea of combining all this stuff made, made more sense. Like it didn't, you know, had we tried it early on, I don't think we were as confident in our ability, you know, like mm -hmm. our, like as certainly, and, and the songs were, were not capable vehicles for what we were thinking. Like, I really think it took us getting to Kiko for the songs to sort of like be appropriate for this kind of idea. And then certainly, you know, getting Mitchell and Chad and their, like their whole sonic approach of endless experimentation is what kind of made the whole thing kind of viable and and that's how it, it it sort of took off i mean that it was just yeah. it, literally every every single person was in the same like headspace at the same time ready to, for it to, to happen how did you get louis to sing a song and and, and you know uh, uh, he just he described it to me as being chased down the street and he hid under a car and then you <laughs> guys you guys convinced him to sing a song well, you know, he's, he, you know, he's not a aggressive guy, certainly by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, it was like, he had the perfect voice for that, for that song. It was mm -hmm. like, you know, he, it was, you know, he wrote it and it, it wasn't, you know, if you l listen to it, it's, I don't think, you know, it's not a Dave song, it's certainly not a Caesar song, you know, it's, it's a Louis mm -hmm. song. So, um, you know, he can be convinced if uh, in the right moment to, to do like, you know, we didn't have to like put a gun to his head or anything. Like we just had yeah. to talk, talk him through the process and he was good to go. Right. Um, you know, uh, speaking of melting pot, I mean, I am a Los Lobos super fan and I'll tell everybody that, but my theory, if you give me a pen and scratch paper of why Los Lobos uh, um, is the greatest American band is because it's a melting pot. It's because that's what America was supposed to be and you have roughly the same members this entire time and then on top of that every time you guys make a record you're not resting on your laurels you're not going with well well what should we sound like in order to please people it's it's always moving forward and uh my question to you is what can i do what can anybody do to get you guys in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Why? Yeah. What is the big deal? I don't know. 
you know, honestly, man, we it's something we spend literally zero minutes thinking about. It's yeah. it doesn't, you know, like the the awards and stuff like that, they're lovely. I mean, the Grammy last year was a you know, huge surprise. I mean, it was yeah. delightful and wonderful. But it's, you know, we don't ever, ever, ever think or talk or like spend any time like on you know how why haven't this happened you know it just we're just making music it doesn't like all that stuff is like it's nice certainly you know we're we're gonna hit 50 next year that's gonna be a thing mm -hmm. but you know we just don't think that way it's not it's it, it's not i don't know it's just we we don't care yeah. <laughs> it really doesn't mean anything i mean it's lovely again like the the you know the acknowledgement of our peers is delightful and we certainly it's not like we don't respect the people respect us. I mean, certainly that's mm -hmm. a big thing, but it's not, again, it's like, we just do not spend anything. Like, you know, you asked the question, I would say, don't do anything. Just you know, <laughs> time will either it'll happen or it won't happen. But, um, you know, we know we're, 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 um, happy with what we have built, what we built. Um, you know, I think the catalog speaks for itself. The songs, you know, by and large are pretty good. So, that's all we asked for. We don't care about nothing else. Yeah. This last album um, was covers of, you know, Los Angeles songs, essentially. And you recorded it and toured it. And and as you just mentioned, it, it won a Grammy. And uh, it's wonderful. And I'm wondering if there's any discussion of the next original Los Lobos record. Haven't really started that process yet, to be perfectly honest. Um, it's been, uh, you know, it's been this year, 2022 was really busy. Uh, like up through the summer, it was super busy. Uh, we we kind of slowed down a little bit. We're about to get relatively busy again. So I think, you know, I know we know that it's probably time. I know um, certainly we owe the label. You know, we know there's a, another record in the contract. Um, but we haven't really talked about it because, you know, one thing is it's like, you know, so if it's connected to the 50th, like, how do you make a record that speaks to the 50 year legacy? I mean, it's impossible. Yeah. And certainly, you know, it's hard enough to, <laughs> to make a decent record, much less one that carries the weight of, of a 50 year, you know, like trying to say something of a statement that reflects the gravity of that. So it, we sort of, you know, we don't, it's not like we don't work, work well under pressure, but we certainly don't need that pressure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's useful or helpful on any level. So I don't know. It, it would be uh, the short answer of like, what, what, what we're going to do about it mm. uh, or how we're going to deal with it. Um, it's just sort of like um, uh, at some point it'll dawn on us and <laughs> we'll either do it yeah. or we'll put it off till 51 and we're not going to have to worry about it. Um, but you know, you know, I, it, it is like, even though we don't really care about the accolades or the or anything like 50 is significant and we just don't know how frankly to address it it's just it's a you know we certainly didn't imagine it at 20 or 30 or 40 even that we'd be here at yeah. 50 with the same guys you know getting ready to you know doing the same stuff so um yeah hopefully somebody will come up with a good idea <laughs> i don't know i really don't know how to how to you know process it to be honest with you does the band have plans to tour next year? Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely be touring, and yeah. I think be uh, if I mean at least there'll be uh, a couple of concerts that you know, like a fiftieth anniversary thing with 
with friends and you know people doing stuff i mean we'll we'll at at some point in the year there will be an appropriately uh sized event to celebrate uh, i just don't know when where how or anything like yeah. that but we, i know that the conversation has begun um clearly we're gonna have to you know rely on people that are better at this than than we are mm-hmm. um but i think uh you know that'll that will happen at some point um i just don't I'm not 100% sure what any of the, the details of that are or are going to be yet. What do you have going on personally right now that you're excited about that you're working on? Um, well, uh, I'm uh, in the middle of a few different records. I'm, I'm you know, just uh, it's been, a, I've been lucky enough to do a bunch. Um, I did a record with a band called uh, Shiny Ribs in Austin. It's oh, pretty yeah. great. Uh, I'm getting ready to do a record here in uh, Portland with a guy named uh, Jose Medellas, who was the drummer in the Pixies. Yeah. Uh, he's known, he's got a drum store called uh, Revival that all the drummers in the world know and love because he's, he's kind of a special guy. But he's got a, a really interesting band and that's going to be uh, uh, in January. Uh, I'm finishing a record with a guy named uh, Rush Sturges. It's kind of like a, he calls it folk hop music. So it's kind of a little bit different for me like stuff i've not really ventured into before but that's been a wall uh what else i i got like five different records in various states of completion or about to be done so uh you know this is what i wanted to do this is the life that i wanted and i'm getting to do it so i'm I'm, you know i couldn't be more grateful or or happy about it It sounds like you have a i'll sleep when i'm dead uh you know mantra a little bit I just like, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed making records. It's fun. It's, uh, you know, it's unpredictable. You never know what you're going to get. You know, some mm-hmm. days are, are amazing. You know, some days you just got to slog through it like anything else. But, uh, you know, I'm, uh, like I said, it's, uh, I, I enjoy it. It's, uh, I'm, you know, lucky enough that the Lobos, you know, is um, financially viable enough that I don't need to get paid a zillion dollars to do it. So, yeah. you know, but if I want to make a record, I'll, I'll do it. And, you know, it doesn't, it, it's just how we, I'll, I don't care. <laughs> I yeah. just want the record. Um, that way I should mention there's another one. Uh, it's, I think it's going to be out very soon. It's called the Rasquachi Liberation Front. Rasquachi is spelled R-A-S-Q-U-A-C-H-E, which was, uh, it was my COVID project. It's me and a, and a, and a guy named uh, Chris Clark. Um, and it's uh, sort of like a psychedelic, dare I say, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like all over the place in a good way. Um, and it was sort of like, we started it right at the dawn of COVID when, you know, I didn't know if I'll ever play music again or mm-hmm. the house again, or, yeah, you know, like nobody really knew what the fuck was going to happen. And so sort of like, uh, uh, it, it was just sort of like, you know, like, well, let's just make interesting music. And we did, it's kind of a, you know, cool, fun, weird uh record that'll uh i i hope i mean so far the people that have heard it really like it i hope uh you know when's it gonna come out any day i it's uh label is um it's a label called cosmica okay uh it's a mostly latin label uh that um you know small uh basically it's one man one guy runs the whole thing it's sort of like he's got there's another artist on the label named carla morrison who's kind of a big deal and she's like a megastar in latin america so it's sort of like you know as he can deal with it around her 
release schedule. So we, I know it's supposed to come out um, in the fall and now it's been postponed a couple of times just because she's kind of blown up her stuff. So uh, it should be out soon, but something to, I, I, I'm very proud of it. It came out really good. Nice, man. I'm excited to hear that. Yeah. yeah it's a lot of fun. So one last question, you know, you're in this cabin, you got your five albums, you got the band, you got bitches brew. And um, I always ask everybody if, if when you're escaping the apocalypse and, and going up to this cabin in the event that you could take one thing with you that you're, you're able to carry, what would it be? Sheesh. One thing. Well, um, I guess the phone wouldn't really be a thing. <laughs> yeah, like who could you call? You could take uh, it, but it probably would, wouldn't be very useful. Uh, you know, I'd have to bring some way to make music, I would think. I don't know. Like a keyboard. Um, I don't know. That, the thing, it, that, you know, some something, some device that could capture something musical on either yeah. me making it or somebody else making it. Um you know, maybe an iPad just because it has all that shit on it. Well, a baritone sax could be a good weapon if, if you know, yeah, zombies baritone are at the sax door could be too. a good weapon. But I, you know, honestly, I'd probably like, you know, it's a little, I mean, if that's all I'm going to take away, I'd, I'd probably need something a little more yeah. uh, useful. Oh, and also, you know, when you were saying that you left Philly in, uh, it's what, 74 is what you said? Yeah. Yeah. So is is that the reason why the, the Flyers haven't won the cup since then? <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> yeah, I never didn't really think about the correlation, but uh, you know, uh, it's hard to dispute the evidence. <laughs> Sounds like it was you, you know. Yeah, evidently. <laughs> uh, you know that the whole thing about Labamba and the Oilers. Do you hear about that? No. So the Oilers um, uh, adopted Labamba as their fight song. And oh, uh, wow. run to the you know the I, obviously they lost to you guys, but uh, mm -hmm. in their like they they had a so back to the Gretzky era, he was dating a girl before uh, one of wherever the wife was, who had a developmentally or I believe it's called neurodiverse uh, brother, mm -hmm. and um, so Gretzky insisted that the organization hire this guy. And he became a beloved figure. He be, he he'd worked for the the Oilers th for all of those years, back to the eighties, back to the Gretzky era. Mm -hmm. um, why am I spacing on his name right now? But um, he passed early in the pandemic, mm -hmm. and his thing was whenever the Oilers would win, he would say, you know, play La Bamba, baby. So, you know, the Oilers' run last year was really improbable. They came from like you know they were the last seed in, yeah. As they knocked off more and more of the higher seeds it the whole Obama thing became a, like a thing so right now when you drive into edmonton there's a big play la Bamba baby statue outside mm -hmm. the, the the city and it's it became a huge thing and uh, you know to be honest with you i i wasn't aware of it till well after it had already started i have a friend who's a sportscaster in, in canada and he was like are you aware of any of the stuff that's going on in, in edmonton i was like not really and so, so so like it was the thing and then you know very innocently i i tweeted something like hey you got you know like that we were paying attention and it became this huge thing and then like then suddenly they're like the last canadian team in yeah and it's like the whole country so i was like 
you know, before they got wiped out by the, the avalanche, that, you know, like every day I was on Canadian television or radio. That's awesome. La Bamba every day. So <laughs> it's uh, it pretty cool. Well, if they uh, can get past the Avs this year, maybe you guys can go and play the parade. Yeah. Well, you know, I told them we were actually, we we're supposed to go there in, in uh, October. And uh, unfortunately we had to pull out of the, the the tour, but yeah, we, we had like a whole kind of thing planned. So at some point we will go there and, you know, we probably have like a little celebration because it was, it was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. It was similar here with Blink-182, you know, because they, yeah. um, at the end of the third period in every Avs home game, they play the small things. Um, and then it's magical because once play actually starts, the crowd continues singing the song, the entire song. And it's, it's one of the few times at an American sporting event that you feel the way it must be in Latin America and Europe with, with, you know, songs and that, you know, that group experience. I did not know that. That's, that's kind of awesome. Wow. <laughs> and so they won the cup and then uh, Mark Hoppus came to the, uh, the banner raising in, in Denver. Huh. Yeah. And is uh, Blink-182 Colorado? They're not Colorado band, right? No, it's completely random. Totally, totally random. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Well, good for that. That's, that's cool. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Steve. Yeah, man, my pleasure. Absolutely. I'll give you another hour. That was uh, Steve Berlin of Los Lobos. And that was me uh, geeking out like only a ridiculous geek can. Thanks for listening. And please have a safe and happy New Year's Eve and New Year. Um, I'll be playing drums up in... Netherland this Saturday night in one of my bands um, opening up for Gasoline Lollipops at their big New Year's Eve show. Uh, 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 today, though, I'm actually leaving for a week in Mexico where I'll definitely be listening to the playlist I made last time I went there. It's the ultimate dad joke, but I'll see you next year. Uh, send me an email at um, milehighstash at gmail.com with any tips for resolutions or guests you think I should have on or just to say hello, ciao. So you want to rise above duality You want to transcend day and night Yes, I'm old-fashioned, I just...